This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Years ago now, I was having breakfast with my mentor, discussing my plans for Busy Being Black. As usual, I was wondering what right I have to convene stories like these, to offer myself up as a voice and space for our stories and our lives. My mentor, Everwise, responded, Josh, your ministry is in your DNA. I've thought about this a great deal ever since and have been drawn to expressions of art and life that speak to this wisdom. The work we choose to do in the world, the people we choose to be against the odds, is how each of us does the ministering necessary to ensure we and our communities can thrive. We live as an expression of our truth. And the ministry we're engaged in is one that requires defiance, which my guest today offers through a prodigious kaleidoscope of artistic expression. Nakane is a multidisciplinary artist and musician from South Africa, whose music, writing, and film work strikes an unusual balance between vulnerability, rage, and the erotic. Like many of us, Nakane grew up in the throes of Christianity and felt compelled to renounce their sexuality in order to do what was asked of them. But the religious community Nakane gave up so much for was not there when Nakane needed them. Their queer family was. And so our conversation today explores what their excommunication from the church taught them about their capacity for love and to be loving. Their refusal to abide by the dictate that black people should always take the high road. The importance of understanding our chosen art forms as both multifaceted and as a calling to be taken very seriously. And their advice to those who are resisting against a world that wants them to be anything other than who they are. I'm Josh Rivers, and I'm Busy Being Black with Nakane. Nakani, thank you so much for joining me on Busy Being Black. I'm thrilled to have you in this space and to for you to share your wisdom and your life and your art with Busy Being Black listeners. So thank you. Well, thank you for inviting me. And I, I mean, I love this this podcast and I don't know about wisdom, but I can maybe share. Well, I guess we'll see what I'll share. 
I guess we will. <laughs> um, to open, I'd like to ask my guests the same question. How's your heart? Huh. It's okay. It's okay. I've just come back from holiday and that was lovely. So I think I have some post-holiday blues. But I'm, I'm busy, which is always good. I love being on holiday, but I think around day five, I start to feel a little bit like a cork in the ocean. I feel a little directionless. directionless. And my routine is really important to me because it keeps me, it keeps me grounded and gives me a sense of, and this is the simplest way I can say it, maybe not the most true or correct, but it, it gives me some sense of purpose. It anchors me because I got diagnosed with ADHD about two years ago and I hadn't realized then what it was, but that kept me okay. And that was routine, that it was my repetition. And I've always been obsessed with repetition, whether it's in music or in in your daily routine. But I, just, I guess I didn't know how important that would be, that was at least, for my well-being. So now that I'm back home from holiday, I'm starting to, I guess, come back to that routine and my heart is starting to settle. So it's in, I guess it's in, it's, it's in uh, transition transition <laughs> i think i struggle with undiagnosed adhd i'm sure and one of the things i resist in life is structure and consistency and repetition in fact um i find it really abrasive all of that and i've got friends who are earth signs i'm a fire sign you know they they need structure and plans and foresight and foreshadowing and i'm trying to learn how to how to live and thrive in a world that where structure is required for things to get done because we don't live in, because I think ADHD is really creative people being forced to do things that we probably aren't designed to do. But how do I build around myself a structure that works for me? I really agree with that. And also even the idea, I mean, the, the nomenclature of it, the, the naming of things like neurodivergency, as much as, the naming is important and I think it gives people something to hold on to and it gives because definitions sometimes are really they can really help you in understanding maybe something that felt difficult or uneasy. But I also think that by making a binary of this person is neurodivergent and this person is neuro what's the the one that's supposedly normal, um, then we say that this person is normal and this person is abnormal. Whereas I think that being alive is varied and being a human and human beings are varied. We pathologize people's minds and people's experiences without really understanding that maybe it's not as pathological as the medical world would like us to believe or mainstream mainstream world would like us to believe. But it's actually really normal. Everyone is different. You know, so why wouldn't our neurons and how our brains work be different? Why not? I, I say usual instead of normal because I try to get away from that. Who wants to be normal? It's a really, really dangerous word, you know, and I didn't realize how dangerous it was until I'd left, I mean, 
I try to cure to curate my life and the people I spend my time with very carefully because I know that your surroundings your surroundings have a really big impact on how you feel and how you are and how you see the world and how you dream or imagine. Um, and so if you're co constantly surrounded by people who tell you that there's something wrong with you, that there's something that you need to change, or I mean, we all can can be better at what, at, or maybe the things that are not so great, but there's a way of doing it and there are, I'll be cheesy and say, and I think love is really important in that. Mm. You know, if you have a father who's constantly telling you, why aren't you like other children? Then there's a problem with that. You know, trying to fit yourself into this shape that you are not. And you'll never fit into that shape. You'll always feel uneasy. You'll always be anxious about it. And there's this thing as well that I've noticed over the course of my own life is that there can be this, to your point, you know, we all have things that we'd like to improve upon because we have an individual and internalized idea of who we'd like to be in the world. But then there are parts of us that are very natural expressions of creativity or curiosity um, or impulse or desire. And so often, if we have an impulse, desire, way of behaving that falls outside of the neurotypical or the dominant order, we're so often asked to change. And I find myself increasingly saying, well, how do you expand? How do you expand to accommodate my idiosyncrasies? Because I expand to accommodate yours. And I never ask other people to be anything else. I make space for people to be themselves. And so I'm leaning towards those who want to co-create space with me. Completely. I think even as a child, I was always complaining to my mother because she was because I was first born. And she always used to say to me, you need to understand. You need to be understanding. And I mean, I think I... I try to be understanding. My mom and I have this conversation, these conversations now that I'm older, where, you know, I, we really, there's this realization that I was actually quite an easy child to raise, right? I wasn't, I was, I wasn't out drinking, I wasn't stealing cars, I wasn't doing, uh, I wasn't getting people pregnant, left, right, you know what I mean? I wasn't, I was quite nerdy actually. I just wanted to be at school and play my, my instruments and read, etc., etc. But in that, in that um, malleability and being quite adaptable, you find that people abuse that, you know. And even as a child, I, I felt that there was an, an abuse of how understanding I was. And so now that I'm older, I, I find myself going back to the question I always used to ask my mom, why must I always be the one who's understanding? Why can't you be understanding about this, you know? Why must I always compromise? Of course, life is full of compromises. But why must I always be the one who's making myself smaller? And I think that, I don't think, I don't think that that's something that I'm the only one who feels. I think a lot of particularly queer people and women have felt that way. Um, I hope you don't mind if we spend a little bit of time um, in your adolescence. Um, I was reading one of the many beautiful profiles of you on the internet and was really um, struck to read that you renounced gayness, as it were, for a time, and threw yourself into um, the Bible and uh, preaching. And I come from a deeply religious Black Southern Christian family, and my grandfather was a Baptist preacher 
And I, while I wasn't preaching and proselytizing, I certainly did throw myself into the Bible to see if I could find whatever password I needed um, to make me not gay, to make these feelings go away. And so I just wanted to invite you to, to talk about that experience and importantly, what you learned from that. Wow, that experience was very difficult. Really, really difficult. And it's only now that I'm in my 30s that I realize how difficult it was because it was so normalized. And it's still so normalized. You know, um, when I came out around 17, 18, I came out to my friends and my cousins, cousins who were of the same generation as me. And it was really easy. You know, because obviously they were outward signs. <laughs> you know, everyone that I came out to would go, okay, well, obviously, come on. And I loved that experience. I loved that experience of how easy it was, that it was not dramatic, that I, there were no tears. If anything, I felt I was really coming, I was blossoming into myself, you know. And then I was outed and I, and by an ex-girlfriend uh, about a year or two years later, and my family found out, and that was difficult. I was taken to a prophet. I was threatened to be thrown out of home. I was actually, that's when I became difficult, because I thought, fine, I'll leave. And, but of course, you know, I, I don't know, I don't, I don't know how other families are, but my, my aunt would call me and say, we've all been threatened with being, thrown out, with being thrown out of home. No one actually ever leaves. You just have to stick it out, you know. You just have to stick out the, the, the aggression and, and all these things that they say to you. They don't mean them. But the things that they were saying to me were really cruel, you know. And people actually used to call me and say, please change for me. Why can't you do this for me? which I found even more hurtful and offensive. And it's so one-sided as well, right? That... Yeah, 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 yeah. It's about, it's about them. It's like, but you haven't even asked me how I feel. You haven't asked me how I'm dealing with what's going on right now, you know? So that made me, <laughs> that made me really difficult, you know? And, but, you know, when you are a teenager, or at least in your very early 20s, because I, th I don't think I was even 21 at that point, and you have no outside, I guess, chosen family, it's, it's sore, you know? So I, 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 I buckled and I started going to church, and also because I was told by this, prophet that i was chosen so he really really got into my ego part i was like oh, oh i'm chosen and this is a oh, oh okay i like this i'm chosen and the devil's trying to steer me away from my path gone even though he was saying i remember I, I remember this very distinctly he said to me you've had this dream you know of a man wearing white and he's come to you and i was like i haven't had that dream he said no no, no you, should, you just don't remember i was like and I, I sat there and I was trying to think, even when I went home, I'm trying to remember this dream that I was like, this dream hasn't happened, you know. But anyway, I got back into to cut a long, very long and convoluted story short. I got back into the church. I broke up with the boyfriend that I loved very much, which is possibly the most painful thing about the whole experience. And I threw myself into that world. 
because I really thought that this was, as St. Paul says in the Bible, my thorn on my side, you know, this thing that God would never take away, because that's what I was told. It was my sin groove. Yeah, that, that thing, that thing that we all have when we're, when we're born into this earth. You know, that. And so I, I tried very hard to be a straight law, by law I mean scripture abiding Christian. But there came a point where this thing was just not, the, this fake thing was just not working. You know, and it, strange enough, it happened when my life started really falling apart around my mid 20s, around 24, 25. When things in my career were starting to come together, I'd just been signed. My first album was about to be released. My life at home was falling apart. Everyone's life was falling apart because of my father's business had gone under. And suddenly I found myself without a home. The friends, the queer friends that I had made that I was told to let go of because they were bad influences were the only ones who were there for me. The church wasn't there. No one ever called me to find out where are you sleeping? What are you eating? Are you eating? And it was the first time in my life that I asked myself, what do you really believe in? You. Your mom is not there to remind, me, to remind you to go to church. Your, your mentor in church is not there to give you scriptures to read to encourage you. Who are you now outside of all these influences? And I just couldn't reconcile Christianity with who I really felt I was deeply inside. And also at the time I was becoming even more black conscious because I'd gone to university. This really helped. I went to university. I started studying African literature and my world was turned upside down. Or maybe the right way around, really. You know what I mean? And the church kept on saying, you, you've changed, you've, you know, this university is making you less godly. And yeah, that made life in church quite difficult because they would say shit like in the good old days, as in apartheid days. Good old days. For whom were these days good? Yeah, and there's a part of that, that again, right, we, we begin to see that these requests that are made of us, which are prima facie, requests for you to love everyone else a little harder. You know, if you loved us a little bit harder, if you were a bit more devoted to us, you would do this thing for us. And that is a, that is a direct replication of this very patriarchal theology that we are indoctrinated with, right? That it is we really- We have to flat pack ourselves, we have to flat pack ourselves into what patriarchy wants us to be, right? Regardless of our desires, regardless of our dreams. Yeah, and that your happiness, does your happiness right now doesn't matter, right? That, that the, it's so puritanical, right? That if you cannot be who you are, and be the thing we need you to be, there will be some ultimate payoff. And that is no life to live, right? Or certainly not a life I don't know. I'm done with that. I'm done with the, I mean, when I left the church and I was excommunicated actually, how, how very old fashioned. <laughs> the drama. <laughs> like, 
what is it? Is it this is the Victorian times? But anyway, uh, when I was excommunicated, I expected myself to feel lighter, but it was really painful. Because that was my family for a really long time and I loved them and this is complicated, but I do believe that they did love me, you know, in their own fucked up way, um, in their own very limited way. The love was flawed, but I do believe that it was there. Um, so that was hard. And that took years, years of very mindful reprogramming of my brain. You're not going to go to hell. You know, um, God isn't angry at you every time something goes bad in your life. Like, oh, it's because I left the church. It's because I'm, I'm queer. Da, da, da. Do you know what I mean? Because like, that's programmed into your head that if you just go back to the church, things are going to be okay again. But of course, it doesn't work like that. No. I wonder what you've learned of love then since then. So you've said that you understand the love that you were given as a type of flawed love. What have you learned about your own capacity for loving and what you think love actually is? Wow, that's a very good question. Um, love is big. It's much more bigger than, like God, if you believe in God or in a higher power or the universe or whatever, it's so big. Can't be contained by what we've created. Because even the religions that we practice were created by us. So we've limited. We are, we are the limitation, you know? And we can't see past our own creations. You know, to, to, to be curious about how big love can be, how big... And I'm not just talking about familiar love. I'm talking about romantic love as well. I'm talking about monogamy. I'm talking about, like, all kind of possibilities we've we're not curious and so i think that love for me now what i understand about love is that it doesn't doesn't make anyone feel small love calls out no come on friend you and i both thought that wasn't cool but it's in the way that it's done, right? It's, no, it's not in a way to diminish someone. If it doesn't build you up, it's not love. You know? There's this quote that I love from Reverend Angel Kyoto. Love is spaciousness. It is creating enough space within ourselves so that others can show up as they are. And that doesn't mean that we don't hope that things are changed or shifted that to come from a place of love is to gain acceptance of what is, even in the face of moving it towards something that is more whole and more spacious for all of us. I love that. Right? It's big. I have a relationship like that with my mother now. In that, and that I think we we've come to a place where we understand each other and what the other needs. My mom is still a Christian. We've had a very difficult time landing where we are now and of course we we it's always moving it's always changing right we never arrive love is queer if you think about it like it's like queer theory we never get there but we always we always we're always trying 
you know, turning the stone over, trying to understand. But more than anything, it's, it's experimental. And, for example, my mom and I, like, I know she's a Christian, and so I'm no longer that, that, like, that person who, who makes jokes about, like, Jesus and stuff to her. <laughs> because that hurts her. I know that. I don't believe in it. But I know that if I keep on picking at her, that's not love. That's my own ego. That's me trying to get my own way again. And I think, one of the, I mean, when I went to therapy, started going to therapy again, actually, a few years ago, I realized when you're asking something of someone, that is a mirror. If, I'm, if I can say to you, I need you to be more understanding, then what right do I have to think that I should not be more understanding? And that's, that, was, that was a moment for me, one of those aha moments where I thought, oh, oh, so what I am asking of my partner, for example, then I should also be open. If I may, this reminds me of something I'm currently exploring. So there's a wonderful theorist slash cosmologist called Sophie Strand. And she's saying that Western religions teach us that God is in the sky, right? He's up there and it's a, he's a he, of course, and he's a man lording over everything. And our goal is to withhold who we are so that we can ascend at some point to something beyond this realm. She argues that Jesus actually should be understood as a spore God, as a God who emerged from the earth and was put back into the earth to regenerate the soil, the people who feed from the, from the earth, and it, it brings it back down to us. And so I hear that in, in, in this conversation as well, that we need to understand God or our own godliness and divinity as of this earth. And I think that's so important, right? Now, not, not later, not when I'm dead, not in the future, but now, in the present. And to my, it, it, it makes me think of, you know, 1976 in South Africa with the, you know, with the students rising up and saying no. And the parents were saying, oh no, I mean, we have to be patient. And the kids were saying, but we've been patient now. And I think that's so important to realize because I think we are living in a time where if we don't realize now, then shit is going to change really adversely because we still think, because we're not, we're not living in the present. And I, I, I know I don't most of the time. I know I'm thinking about the future. But how offensive is that to this beautiful moment right now, however ugly, however frightening it is, to be here now and to want things to be the best that could be now? Speaking of the ugly and not paying attention to the present, um, you've said in describing your new album, which comes out in 2023, quote, I am myself bored with beauty. Talk to me about beauty and what it means to be bored with beauty. I'm bored with what I understood to be beauty. I'm bored with what I felt I had to aspire to be or to be with. 
right? Um, when I started going out to gay clubs in South Africa, I was living in the West in the suburbs in Joburg, and it was mostly white gay boys. And so I started to have like this, my identity was morphed around them and them and wanting to be chosen by them, to be seen as desirable, right? And there was nothing I could do to change myself, to be like them, because I wasn't. And it took me years to realize that there's, I mean, oh God, we could go for years about the politics of desirability and how as black people we are always taught, we are taught from like, from birth, that again, there's something wrong with us, that we should try to change how we see ourselves in order to fit into what the West, well, the mythological West seems to believe is best. And so, for a long, long time, so, I mean, in my 20s, I was trying to fit into this mold. And then, as I always do, I swung right left, to like to the left, like, oh, or to the right or whatever, I'm not quite sure, where I had this rage towards particularly white gay men, white young gay men. I mean, that rage still exists because I feel like they hog everything. You know, and that was even more exacerbated when I moved to London. Where I thought, wow, you take up every space, huh? You think you've created everything. Even, even the way you speak, you don't realize it doesn't come from you. Yes, sis, I'm like, you don't even, you don't even, nothing, you know. Now I'm in a place where I'm thinking, wait a minute, why are you expending so much energy on this? This is, being desirable to whiteness is not important to you. Well, at least it shouldn't. Who, again, going back to this whole idea of who are you now? Right? Now that you've realized that that's not, a particular, that's not your pot of gold. And that's not something to, to aspire to. And so that's what I think I meant by I'm tired of beauty. And also, I, on, on the other hand, is that I'm tired of... I'm tired of always being... I'm tired of queer people being seen as always like... Um, uh, ah, like um, how do I explain it? Uh, on. You always have to like. You always have to bring the looks. You always have to. Yes, of course. Sometimes I want to bring the looks, but sometimes I don't. And that doesn't make me less lovable, or worthy. Right? Or less talented, etc., etc. And so I'm trying right now to investigate what it means to be. And this, hmm, what I mean, how I can be dull, right? Of course, we can never be dull, let's be serious. But how I can be dull as opposed to, as opposed to try, again, trying to fit into this idea of what people think a queer performing artist should be.
My conversation with Nakani continues in a moment. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. I'm Josh Rivers, and you're listening to Busy Being Black. I'm in conversation with South African artist and musician Nakane. Their new EP, Leading Lines, is released on December 16th, and the lead single, My Ma Was Good, asks, If our mothers played by the rules and still got a raw deal, why should we even try to be good? This leads us on really nicely, actually, to the multidimensionality that I see, feel, and hear in your work. So often, as we've been speaking about, and and this understanding is very much informed by my own lived experience, Black people are made one-dimensional. So we're talking about queer people always having to be on and showing up with a look. And Black queer people, and let's, you know, Black queer people who present as men, if we can say that, um, in this space to be specific to our lived experiences, there's always a demand of us that is at once limited, as you've mentioned, um, but is also contradictory. We're, we're at once supposed to be a fulfillment of a sexual fantasy, a fantasy of fear, these expectations that were always there for someone else's sexual serviceability. And we are trying to disentangle ourselves collectively from the white supremacist imagination, right? Like trying to say, oh, how do we, how do we create a world in our own image, right? Instead of trying to fashion a survival skin in the world that we've been given. So there's an, there's an unapologeticness that I really admire um, in your work. Um, and I wanna know what drives this creative practice and these different expressions? How do you know which outlet is the right one for the different versions of, or the different parts of you, I should say? Oh, oh. Hmm. I think when I started making, when I was, when I started becoming more comfortable in my skin, I realized I kept on watching a lot of films and a lot of TV shows with particularly black, queer, male representing people. And they were entertainment. They were there for laughs. Not even for people. They were barely people. Again, going back, I mean, let's not forget that black people have just become human beings. You know? Up until recently, we were labor, we were, I don't, not even animals, I don't know what they called us. So we've just become human beings, you know. So, but, so I understood that my work had to be human. It had to be, not an opposition, because that's too much energy for something that's not important to me, but it had to foreground people who looked like me. Always. Right? And that may change. Maybe there'll be another story that I want to tell. But I've always known, like, for example, I will start, I'll have an idea. And I'll try maybe to say, write a song about it. And I'll think, oh, okay, no, this doesn't work this way. This will work in much longer medium. 
Or I'll have an idea of a story that I want to write down. And I think, oh, actually, no, this will work really well in a song. Because there's something, because the mediums are different and they, they touch different parts of us, of me at least. And I know that there's something really powerful about a song that three, four minutes, you get the mess. I mean, I don't want to say message because that's loaded, but you get the idea of, of what I'm trying to communicate in three, four minutes. It, 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 it moves different parts of your brain. But in a book or a short story or anything else, there's something, you're living with it, right? It's meditative. Music can be meditative too, but you can spend days with the book. You can spend days with the story. And you can sort of turn this coin over and over and over and over and over again. That's a very long-winded way of saying that the story dictates how it wants to be told, really. And I Even hope though, that isn't like a, I hope that isn't a terribly obvious question, but no, no, no. I think I'm I mean, asking I because I'm trying yeah. to navigate my own creative expression at the moment. You know, I have this searing and heartbreaking poem um, called Tasting Notes, which actually started as a dream and it came out as an essay in its first one. And it was pages and pages and pages long. And it was, it just sat like that and it sat within me and I was like, this isn't right, but I couldn't figure out why it wasn't right or what it was supposed to be. And I didn't, nothing said try a poem, but it was one day I woke up and I was like, maybe two years later, I was like, it should be a poem. (laughs) 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 So I wonder if there is, how you know what the medium is, right? And does that make sense if I ask that? Completely. It's it's that stone in your shoe feeling, that, that discomfort, it keeps on, it keeps on moving to your heel and then to, <laughs> to then to the palm of your, of your foot, et cetera, et cetera. But, but you know when you know when it's right. Because that, that's the thing about art is that it's unquantifiable. And I've read many books about what, what art is and no one ever, no one can ever say what it is. Because it's, because it's so big, right? And because you as the artist are the one that defines what it is. And that requires a huge amount of openness and vulnerability and also getting out of the way at least knowing when to get out of the way because sometimes we can force a piece of work to be what we think it should be when actually that's just maybe i'm trying to prove a point i'm trying to tell people that i'm smart i'm trying to show people that how well read i am do you know what i mean and the story and, and and the story is like no actually simplify me and some stories are the other way around don't simplify me make me i I want it to be difficult i want people to spend time with me and to sort of to 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 fold and, and 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 twist themselves in order to understand how complex life is you know because life is life is complex but life is also simple and those two, that, that yin and yang, live together in such, oh my God, in such a fucked up way that, that I don't know how, that I don't have the words for it. But you know when you know. It's like when in, that interview with Nina Simone when, when she says, how, how can you explain to somebody that you're in love? You can say it, you can try to explain it, but does that visceral feeling that you get that that peace that clouds parting and suddenly the sun 
just floods the room with light. And everything in that moment is, and everything in that moment is right. Like everything is aligned. That clap, there it is, clarity. Mm-hmm. And there is, this bigness is recurring in this conversation, right? Art, big, love, big, creative expression, big. And that none of these attempts at self-expression or understanding ourselves or even understanding the world around us even the simplicity you're speaking of sometimes life is simple but it doesn't make it small right big huge yeah and i think that's a really important message to labor here that and again we're having this conversation as part of black history month and the all of these conversations were inspired by this this phrase i kept hearing we are so small after seeing the images from the just wonderful space telescope and i felt like i was taking crazy pills i was like what are y'all saying <laughs> like we're why are we small all of us <laughs> what is it what is it i mean I, I guess we could say there there are structural things that try to smallen us right to make us small making it words now but to describe that process of making a thing small and not small as in a very reduction or anything that that makes something more potent it's it's a smallness that isn't even smallness relatively right yes we are small and relative to the universe of course we are it's a smallness that diminishes and there is a diminishing of the human spirit that i really want to push against that i something Tell inside me. me says i am not small it constantly tells you that you can't it constantly tells you that what's the point why who would listen to you <laughs> who are why? you to say this thing who are you to say this what makes you so special why can't you just fall in line and I've heard a lot of that, particularly in England. Oh, with pronouns, what? You think you're special? You know, why can't you just be like everyone else? And that is not only violent to the person it is said to, it's also violent to the person saying it, and they don't even realize it. And that, like, I mean, I'm not, I'm at this point in my life and I might, I might change. I'm not at a place where it's like, love your enemy. Because I think that particularly black people have been told to turn the other cheek and I'm tired of it. Look at fat black families. Look at that guy who got into, the, got into that church and started killing everyone. Those black families that got black congregation and the, and black people always in court. We forgive you. We're expected to rise above. When they go low, we go high. No! Why? Why? Like, why is it always expected of us to to to, to see on both from both sides for everyone? And yet, when I've been watching the news here in England, families will go to court when someone maybe has been brutally murdered, and they say, we don't forgive you. And everyone claps for them. They never clap for a black person saying that. But this, again, to your point about love, right? That is big too. And I don't know that forgiveness is love. Like, I don't think those two things are of the same, are cut from the same cloth. No. I think forgiveness is, is something we do for ourselves so that we can metabolize and process whatever harm has been caused. But I don't think it's a panacea for all the ills because at some point, you know, like when you're training a dog 
and you've got to put the dog's face up to the shit. And no, you know, I think we don't do enough of the nose shitting with racists and people who would cause us harm. And I think turn the other cheek and this kind of be kind. Yeah, I don't want to be kind. I want you to think twice before you speak to me. I, I call myself a black that bites. <laughs> Love that. Yeah, I'd rather you be concerned to speak to me rather than you thought it was <laughs> it was an open open book. Because they, because there've never been any consequences. There've never been any consequences to what people did to black people. I look at South Africa and I look at post apartheid South Africa and white people. There has never there hasn't been any real retribution. And white people are doing the craziest things in SA because no one told them that because nothing happened. And that only happens to us. You know, we are, what happens to Africa is so beautiful because they were, they were so forgiving. And black people were not even given the choice to be forgiving. We're not even given the choice to go to deal with what happened to us. We were told you have forgiven. Yeah, I don't know. You saw me sit back just then. I was like, well, sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> good point, right? Very good point. And I'm also sorry as well that 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 choice, that engagement, that expression of love that would have invited you into a decision or into a choice was kept from you and from your people. It's it's yeah. it's unjust, unjust. Yeah, it's you 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 shoved into that. This is who you are. Again, going back to my photoing one earlier on, this is who you are, and this is how you behave, and this is how the world sees you. And when black people in South Africa, you know, act, behave in a way that is normal, we were always done violence. South Africa is violent because we're weaned from it. Like we, like as my mom always says, like we drank it from our mother's boob. Violence. So. If violence was our nutrition, what makes you think that it's not going to be coming out of every pore? And something that the great Huma Sekela, like an iconic musician, used to say is that everyone in South Africa should have gone to therapy. You know? And now here we are. We haven't doubted, we haven't doubted the thing. That's something that's, um, that's really important to me right now. You have to face the thing. Because it's not going to go away. Nothing goes away. No. That's hard. <laughs> you know, it reminds me um, of a conversation I had with Reverend Jide Macaulay in 2018, actually. We were talking about the reconciliation of our spirituality and our sexuality. And I asked, I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it. Well. And I asked people I know and love you know, what questions they would put to a queer Black theologian who says that we can reconcile. And at the end of the, and they offered some really beautiful questions and I, add, I put them to Reverend Macaulay. And at the end of the conversation, I said in the voiceovers, I don't know that there's any solutions here. I don't, I don't know that I've provided or helped provide any answers, but pain has never been reconciled by turning away from it, right? Like we we have to turn to the thing. We have to nurture the actual wounds. And then I'm reminded of Toni Morrison, who says the grandeur of life is in the attempt 
Yeah. The exactly. And in another interview, they're talking when she talks about you have to walk through the fire. Yes. That interview, you have to walk through the fire. Okay, she's talking about forgiveness. Yeah. Forgiving you ourselves are. in particular. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, for something you've done, and, mm -hmm. and that owning up for something you've done. You can't reach. You can't skip the steps to the other side. As much as we would like to. <laughs> I think about that a lot. And I think about that, not just about forgiving yourself, but about my work, about learning a new instrument, learning a new program. I want to get there now, right? You can't skip the steps. You have to be inept and then slowly find, no, slowly find the capacity. Slowly, 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 and then you realize before, before you even, you've, before you actually, you, you, you know how to do it before you even realize, oh yeah, I'm, now I'm becoming better at this. But it's that daily practice, and that's what it is. Daily practice. For listeners, I'm laughing and pointing to the sky because just yesterday, Nakane, I swear to God, <laughs> just yesterday, I said almost the same thing to one of my dear friends. I said, I'm trying to run before I can walk and I haven't set myself a plan and steps forward. I'm trying to get to point seven when I'm actually only on point 1.2. Point <laughs> 1.2A. <laughs> Exactly. And it's the thing that we need to, I once went to this reader, this um, clairvoyant who said to me, slow the fuck down. Like, everyone who walked down the street, slow down. You are racing way too fast. And you, you, what, you're going to trip over your own feet and you're just going to roll and hurt yourself. You have to slow down and understand how the machine works in, in order for you to actually use it and i imagine you mean also our human machine or the soft animal of our body as mary olive would say completely mm. understand and for me that's why i think mindfulness is so important just just sit down and just name the sound name the thought name the feeling understand it instead of trying to compress it and put it down you know, going back to Jesus, Jesus says, what did you say? My children are dying of lack of knowledge. Poignant. He is not wrong. <laughs> he really isn't. And I think, I mean, Jesus sometimes is misrepresented. They're like, oh, he was all love and stuff. And I was like, was he? He was like... Beat someone up if they fucking or fucking shit up. Yeah, and Jesus was annoying for people, right? He was like walking into rooms, speaking truth to power, saying, "Why are you doing this?" Exactly. Yeah. Like if Jesus, I always make this this joke to my friend. I was like, if he just shut up, he would have been crucified, but he didn't because he because he couldn't. You know the ancestors are telling me to tell you. This is a direct message. My ministry is in my DNA. My ministry is in my DNA. My mentor said that to me years ago. And it was almost apropos of nothing. And he said, Josh, your ministry is in your DNA. And the more I sat with it, you know, and he knows my 
family's history and my desire to be, this sounds grandiose, but a prophet in the world, right? So someone who helps break through the dullness or helps break through the the the, the fakeness, right? The what's it called when not the orifice, the <laughs> the well, sometimes that has sometimes it has to be broken through too. <laughs> but you know the veneer the, the, the veneer right can my voice and the voices of the guests on busy being black help rattle the cage a little bit so that and so he said your ministry is in your dna and i i that phrase was just going round and round in my head as you're talking that there's something that is i think beyond the kind of western theological traditions that is still a ministry of sorts right that those of us who feel called to use our voice express ourselves in artistic ways do so via ministry. It's our it's our way of ministering to the people we love and we care about. I thought this in every almost in every interview, but I've always believed that being an artist is like being a priest. No, you are of service. You, but that means that you have to do, like like with any priestly job, you have to discipline yourself. You have to, you know, you have to go through the ordeals, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, you know, but I do believe that it may sound highfalutin for some people. But someone once asked me, what, what artists were we before we even met white people, before colonialism? And I sat with that and I thought, huh. Can I just be clear? The question is, what artists were we? Say that yeah. again. What artists were we before colonialism? Mm. Before we understood art as we believe it is now. Right? Uh, clearly, clearly defined little boxes and schools and genres of art. Yeah. Exactly. And I said, oh, my understanding of it is that you were doing it. Well, you're either a, like, for example, a South African, is a closer person, a Sangoma, which is like a like a shaman, not a shaman, it's its own thing, but you know, so you are a conduit, you are you, you, the ancestors speak through you. And so your art form, whether it's the dance, poetry, singing, or oratory, it's like huge. It was A, multifaceted, right? So dance, music, clairvoyance, you know, the making of clothing, etc., etc., theater. Um, number two, it was a calling, something to be taken really seriously. This was your one job. This is your one job. You're here for this one job. And after that, I thought, I saw it really differently, you know. That's of course my like my own ambitions and stuff like that. That too, but also, don't forget, don't forget, don't lose your way just to get that number one album or whatever. It's really important for us to, for me at least, to remember. When people ask me now, for example, I know I'm, but when people ask me now, since you left the church and stuff like that, what do you believe in? And I always, used to, and I always say. A, a closer indebted agnostic that and by agnostic i mean i believe that every 
religion in some way or any of your spirituality is the same, right? When you get down to the skeleton of it, you've, 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 you've ruffled through the sinew, the muscles, the, all that nonsense, to the skeleton of it. We want the same things. The question is, are you willing to oppress other people to get to those same things? <laughs> right? How do you get there to, the, to those same things? And, and so I thought, well, I'm South African. I'm, I come from the closer people. So it makes sense for me geographically to be closer indebted in my spirituality, right? But I also understand that closer people were voracious when it came to spirituality. If they were doing this practice over here and they felt like it wasn't bringing the rains, they were going to go to the next ones. They were going to the Khoisan to see if they could bring the rains. They were going to the Zulus to see if they could bring the rains. Because, they because there was an understanding that God was, God was big. And there were many ways to get to God. You know? And that just blew the skies open for me. I said, oh, okay. This is a big deal. Chill out. Chill out. To close our conversation, I usually ask my guests what you hope for, but I have a different question for you. What would you say to a young person emerging into a world that often demands we act and live according to standards other people have set for us? Hmm. Do you, I think I would say, do you remember that feeling if you ever, if you had a room? Actually, not even room. Remember the feeling when you were alone once? Before anyone told you who you should be, how you should behave. You had those things that excited you. You, just to simplify this, you, when you were playing the guitar and you were really just loving playing the guitar. Go back to try and go back to that feeling. It's gonna be hard. Every decision that you make that is true is gonna be challenged. Everyone, like every people always think like bring it back like to myself now, really. Like people are like, oh wow, you made this. Wow, you so you've made this thing and they think it's so easy, but I wanna say that. Every single decision that I make, what drums to use, what my guitar patterns are, my words, the videos, every single decision that I make about my work is always challenged. And I say that to remind people that that is going to happen to you too. That's why your foundation has to be strong. Go back to that feeling, to that reason. Nikani, that was beautiful. Thank you. Another wonderful and beautiful reminder of many in this conversation. Thank you very much for being here. No, thank you. I, you don't realize how much this has done for me, really. I didn't, I didn't even, mm, yeah.
It was great therapy. Nakane is a multidisciplinary artist and musician from South Africa. Their new EP, Leading Lines, is a revelatory and thought-provoking effort that waxes poetic on sex, morality, politics, identity, and familial heritage. You'll find links to Nakane's work in the show notes. Busy Being Black is an exploration and expression of queer liveliness. And my guests are those who have learned to live, love, and thrive at the intersection of their identities. Your support of the show means the world. Please leave a rating and a review and share these conversations far and wide. As we continue to work towards futures worthy of us all, my hope is that as many of you as possible understand Busy Being Black as a soft, tender, and intellectually rigorous place for you all to land. Thank you to my friend Lazarus Lynch for creating the ancestral and enlivening Busy Being Black theme music. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses, so don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18+. Plus.